podcast one production. After five years of investigation, Michael West has discovered the energy truth. Welcome back to The Energy Truth. In episode one, investigative journalist Michael West explained why we pay close to the highest energy prices in the world despite our vast natural resources. Let's explore how that happened. Rising prices coincided with the creation of the national electricity market. This was an invention of economists who believed competition would be better for users. What Michael has uncovered is a story of government gone wrong, of unintended consequences and a lack of political will to fix a problem that many saw coming. Oh, that's just bizarre. That is just truly bizarre. But I mean, the whole thing, no, nobody ever thought about it before, never talked about it, nothing until the past five years, you know. Look, it was a, it was a very frustrating period for me personally because I could see it coming in 2005 when they created the AR. And I actually went into a very deep personal um, unhappy space for several months in um, 2005 and I could see it coming and um, because I you know I'm driven by good regulation it's been my career and I advised against it like crazy when I saw it coming and then I had to watch it all happen. Bruce Mountain is an international authority on energy. He came to Australia in 2002 from the UK to advise the architects of the great experiment which is the national energy market. He saw disaster looming and his employers ignored his warnings. Two things uh, come out of this for me. One is the lack of a robust accountability mechanism and two, that the states basically controlled the process and they had a massive conflict of interest because their treasuries were benefiting from high prices. It's like so much of electricity economic regulation. It's been dressed up as if there's some rationale or logic or acceptance of it and most of it's just bullshit it's just incentivized bullshit and and um just just a straightforward rot unpacking it so that that becomes clear is is the case the problem was not privatization per se but how the new energy companies were regulated the intention was that federal bodies like the Australian Energy Regulator or AER would oversee an energy market driven by competition run and funded by private interests but that is not what happened. Okay, so the underlying story here is when the industry was restructured they gave the regulation of the transmission networks to the ACCC because it was the high voltage interconnected networks. That's the big coat hangers that crisscross the nation. The states continued to do the distribution network. Getting the power to your home via the street poles and wires. But there was an impetus to put that under a national agency. And so in 2003 and 4 there was a discussion between uh the ACCC and the states to create the AER as the entity that would oversee this so the AER is the body which approves price rises and acts as a judge in disputes the idea of a national regulator sounded good in theory but according to michael there was a fatal flaw it didn't make the rules of the game that fell to another body the australian energy market commission the aamc the quid pro quo for giving it to the AER was they created the aamc above it who would effectively set the rules and constrain the AER. The process started in 2003 and it was completed at the end of 2003 early 2004. At the time they actually commissioned a report an expert report. Uh this was the Ministerial Council of Energy as it was then called who advised them to create a single national electricity regulator. Um instead minister decided to create the AEMC 
in addition to the AER, and the states appoint the chairman and board of the AENC, the states alone. And there's a, a power sharing for the AER where the chairman is jointly appointed by the state energy ministers and the Commonwealth. One member is appointed by the ACCC and one member is appointed by the states. And so the states could effectively put uh, weak people in the AER who they have. Effectively, it wasn't answering to a committee. It was answering to 11 ministers. And uh, the organization is run by lawyers, dominated by lawyers, not economists. The culture of keeping the expenditure under control just went in exactly the opposite direction. And the AER was powerless in this arrangement. They wanted the federal control. They wanted the expansion of the empire and the centralization. But they got it, just like Turnbull, uh, for, for the price of having to sacrifice the very thing that was valuable in having. The power to set the rules. And I saw all this. I was somewhat party to it. I came out to Australia in 2002. I was involved in the first regulation of transgrid, the high-voltage network. There was something very human at play, a belief that a free market would solve any excesses in the system and that the conduct of the energy companies would be restrained by competition. Michael went to see independent energy consultant Tristan Edis. You know, decisions were made that uh, really uh, had negative outcomes and there's sometimes unintended consequences of things like the, the national electricity network, etc. I just want to explore some of the, you know, the actual, what actually happened in human terms that you know, rather than just talk about prices went up because of whatever policy. It was a mentality. It wasn't just the networks. It was a mentality that... Um, that I think also infected the, the approach that they took to how they looked at whether there was effective competition in the, the wholesale generation market as well and, and how they looked at the retail market as well. So each of those three segments of the chain, generation, networks and retail, that every time they looked at a problem or an issue, and I'm talking about the, the public servants that were involved at that time, and, and also the, the relevant ministers, uh, they tended to look at everything from the lens of um, the, the electricity suppliers and, and really what they should have been. They should have been a bit like, um, yeah, I think you guys are going to be important to this puzzle, but I've got to keep a bloody close eye on you because I don't trust you. You know, I give you uh, an inch, you're going to take the mile and screw over consumers. And I don't think they had that kind of watchfulness and, and cautious wariness about the suppliers. Some called this out at the time but were ignored. But such were the political benefits from overspending. Jobs and growth, huge dividends to state governments in New South Wales and Queensland and the re-election of governments, the great gold plating had begun. So what did they build? Transformers are the main component in um, the network expenditure that was involved was, was upgrading transformers and adding more transformers. That was when people say we spend a lot of money on poles and wires, what they actually mean is we spend a lot of money on transformers. What is a transformer though? As far as I'm aware, it's an album by David Bowie. Uh, that would be Lou Reed, Michael. <laughs> well, a, a transformer is, um, yeah, you, you see them up on the pole and they're often the thing that you can hear buzzing. That's one example of a transformer. Or when you go past one of those big substations that has a whole heap of wires feeding into it and there's a bunch of stuff on the ground and all this, this shiny metal, um, the transformer essentially steps down the voltage from the, the big, big transmission lines that come from the power stations 
they come along, they then come towards a um, the city and they'll step down that voltage from 500 to say 250 and then it steadily goes down until it gets to your house where it's stepped down to um, 240 volts. How much over so in, was there was there in, in dollar terms on this stuff? Didn't you? Well, I mean, the, the total amount of expenditure that was approved back in 2007 in, in network expenditure was about $40 billion. In the 2007 five-year period? Yes. How much of that was excessive expenditure? It's sort of hard to... I, I couldn't put a number on it. Some other people would be more capable than me in putting, putting a precise number on it. But when you... Because some of it wasn't all to do with upgrades in capacity. Some of it was to do with well, we've got a new housing estate, we've got to build some stuff to, to service that new housing estate, but I suspect you, you, you'd be talking close to half of it um, was was unnecessary expenditure given where we've seen electricity peak demand go. Possibly $20 billion in excess spending in that first five-year period. $20 billion wasted. The first period set the course for the game to come. The next customer pricing regime was established in 2012 using that already inflated asset base. In your view, Tristan, is that the number one balls up in this whole process, the number one example of the, uh, the regulators taking their eye off the ball, the number one failure? Well, uh it's not just the regulators, it was the rule maker. Um, so I suppose that, you know, you attribute that to the Australian Energy Market Commission as well as the regulator. You know, I mean, I think one thing that's worth pointing out is the Australian Energy Regulator, the head of that, Andrew Reeves, did bell the, you know, the cat. He, he, he said, look, the rules are, are not working for me. Um, this is kind of a bit too late, really. But he said, look, they've, they've been biased in a particular way that just work all one way towards the networks and allowing the networks to undertake uh, excessive expenditure. But he, he sort of made that clear in a speech. It was sometime around 2010, but it was just too late by then to, to bring it in. There was a series of um, public servants... And, and ministers who had a naive approach to how they looked at these things where they thought if they um, took off the shackles of n- not just network businesses but also retailers and generators that, you know, it all gets sorted out through the wonders of the market and incentive-based regulation and they were naive and that was the lead-up to the problems that we had with network expenditure that came about around that 2007-2008 period, but also, also critically, the large increase we've seen in wholesale electricity prices over the last 18 months could also be put down to this naivety around uh, regulators. Michael's argument is that when the feds left control of the rules with the states, a competitive market was doomed. There was never an effective umpire. And also in Victoria in particular with very high excessive retail charges that are on top of networks and on top of wholesale generation costs and and, and releasing the controls over, over, over retail prices in Victoria, that was a product of... Uh, uh, a naivety and also a, an excessive looking at the problem always through the supplier's eyes rather than, you know, maybe the eyes that you would apply if you were someone from from choice or you were someone from um, 
the uh, the checkout program, where you you can see that the the problems that we see here in this market are repeated in a range of other markets, where regulators just think, oh look, the, the market will sort it all out, and everyone will land on something where consumers end up uh, ahead, and. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm a general believer in markets and I'm a general believer in, in competition, but you've got to recognise that if suppliers, if you don't keep a close eye on them, they'll find a way to m- make money through a far easier way than cutting costs and doing innovative products, and that's called duping the consumer or, or working over the regulator. Competition regulator Rod Sims and other experts recommended when the NEM was being formed that there be a single national regulator. Their voices, however, and the findings of an expert's report were ignored. The broad picture was truly national, national electricity markets. This was the reform. Get electricity away from these horrible state commissions, government state commissions, and create competition and create these national entities and a skilled national regulator that'll have teeth take it away from the states. The states were far smarter than that. They said, right, you're going to take it away. Okay, we'll give it to you, but we will give it to you in name only. Actually, there's the A and C who we appoint and who writes the rules who will oversee you and you guys will just implement it. But you'll also give us the cover for us actually profiteering from this because now we can point to you as making the decisions publicly. And indeed they did this. So when the AER made these crazily generous decisions, the New South Wales Energy Minister was on the press saying, hey, I didn't make the decision. It was the federal agency, expert federal Australian energy regulator who's assessed the prudency and efficiency of the expenditure. Um, So, and the states are very smart. They knew all this, and that's exactly the way the thing was constructed. In just a moment, we will reveal the accounting trick at the heart of gold plating. Roman Demansky. Yeah, this is akin to putting the fox in charge of the hen house. And what you got out of that, not surprisingly, is a system that was massively tilted in favour of the network businesses and against electricity consumers. Roman Demansky is an economist and former bureaucrat who set up the Energy Users Association of Australia, which represents the nation's big industrial energy consumers. You can trace this, you know, if you if you plot a graph uh, of electricity prices, you can see them absolutely spiking at around about the time when they first started to make decisions under this new way of regulating networks. And it's just disgraceful, really. The first set of really big increases in network prices started with the review of the New South Wales transmission and distribution electricity businesses. Um, and that review was done in 2008 and the decision was made in 2009. And in the subsequent five years in New South Wales, the network prices in New South Wales went up by 100% basically. So they doubled in five years. Now, when you consider that network prices make up around about half of the the bills that people get for their electricity, you don't have to be Einstein to work out that that forced up electricity prices for households by about 50% um, in five years. State debts blew out as successive governments built their own gold-plated networks on borrowed money. Bruce Mountain. The biggest source of state government borrowing was debt that it took on to on-lend to its network businesses. The biggest single source of state government borrowing was lending 
to the poles and wires to the distribution networks for no good reason. Just gold plating, building substations that were unnecessary. So how did gold plating happen? Firstly, the cost of power to us depends on the value of the poles and wires that deliver it. To avoid blackouts, energy companies must meet so-called peak demand on the coldest days in winter for heating and the hottest days in summer for cooling. This only occurs on a few days each year, but the networks must be robust enough to deal with it. While usage was rising, the networks argued they had to spend big money to ensure reliable supply. The regulator ticked off on this and kept ticking off on bigger spending and price rises, even as demand for power began to fall from 2007. And secondly, state governments locked in high values for their networks before they were sold. To achieve this, they used an obscure accounting trick. This is called DORC. It stands for Depreciated Optimised Replacement Cost. It is a horrendous acronym designed to limit general understanding. Only industry insiders even talk about it. You better explain DORC to your listeners. (laughs) Depreciated Optimised Replacement Cost, yes. Do you like DORC? Oh, look, I think... uh uh, my answer is no. Uh, being an economist, one's always embarrassed when you're putting two sides to a point, the old two-handed economist. But the, the problem with depreciated, optimised replacement cost is that replacement cost element. Um, so you'd think it's sensible that if you build an asset... You should be entitled to a return on that asset. You should get complete depreciation and complete rate of return. But is it appropriate to keep revaluing that asset and continuing to give you a return on the revalued asset? You didn't have to fork that out. So you're getting you're getting a continual boost to your return. Is that appropriate? Uh, I think it's a good argument that it's not. And, you know, you find... Uh, companies facing continually higher bills on a on a, a power line or a gas pipe that was built a long time ago and they're getting returns on something they never outlaid. So I think there are problems there. Dork is only used in Australia, and for good reason. It doesn't make much sense. Look at it this way. If the government sold the Sydney Harbour Bridge and used Dork to value it, the sale price would be based on what the bridge would cost to rebuild today. Pick a number, any number. But of course, a buyer isn't rebuilding the bridge. They're buying it as a going concern. And yet, Dork is how the states value their networks, at the highest price possible. The value has continued to climb in private hands and the regulators allow the networks to recoup their investments from the consumer. As a result, we have probably the most expensive power network in the world at least on paper, or in the magical world of Dork. Bruce Mountain. Dork per se is simply a, a sort of methodology to revalue assets. Um, the, the underlying idea is we say uh, if we were to rebuild the network that we have today in an optimised way, taking account of demand and supply on the network, what might it look like and what, you know, what, you know, what might it cost to build, it is practically impossible to establish a meaningful number. Networks are far too big, far too complex, and no one knows what it's going to cost to build all of those substations and control gear and easements and overhead lines to reconstruct it. So the idea that you can hire some engineering advisors and they'll come up with a meaningful number is simply not right. The essential issue here, once again, was around 
the economics, what was driving it. And by going through a process in which you were coming up with a, a, a um, regulatory optimization, and you, you were simply creating a smokescreen to justify revaluing upwards um, historically built assets. Networks in other countries like the United Kingdom are valued at a fraction of Australia's. And therefore, their power bills are much more affordable. You know, typically network services in Britain are costing between a quarter and a tenth what they are um, here in Australia. And theirs is, is a much more expensive network. Um, theirs is a largely underground network. It costs very much more to build. So historically, we always used to have um, an inexpensive network, largely overhead, uh, although sparse in some areas, inexpensively sparse um, single wire earth return technologies. Um, so even though they have a much more expensive network than ours, the underlying asset value per customer is much lower than ours, typically between a quarter and a tenth of ours. That, that's partly as a consequence of the fact that they didn't go through the silly dork process, which was essentially here, it was simply a tax grab. In Britain, the driver for the privatisation was around getting these assets to the private sector to operate. Here it was partly that. It was also partly a source of, of tax. Let's talk Dork in action. In New South Wales, Transgrid is a transmission company formerly owned outright by the New South Wales government. It was sold in 2015. Prior to that, based on the cost of replacing its poles and wires, Transgrid used to pay hundreds of millions a year to the state government. It helped pay for schools, roads and hospitals, all funded by energy users. The governments and their agents hired consulting engineers who, for a fee, said this is what the optimised replacement cost of the assets are. And the underlying calculation is, imagine we've got a network serving 2.4 million customers. What would it cost to rebuild that network today? Um, practically meaningless question, and you get a meaningless answer back. No one can possibly know you know, what that number is. What the governments and their regulators wanted to hear was it was far more than the um, historic cost. And that was all that was really necessary. So it was not a engineering assessment. It was simply a tax arrangement to drive up the regulatory value from the historic book costs. This same system now allows Transgrid's new owners to drive up their profits by dreaming up even bigger numbers on how much the network might cost if they had to rebuild it. Your dork isn't used anywhere else in the world. In the vast bulk of countries in the world, there is no attempt to revalue assets to a current purchasing price. Um, in the US, large parts of Europe, it's the historic cost of the asset that's used. That continues to be the case. In the 1990s, Victoria used a form of dork to maximise the sale price of its state electricity commission. But retail prices were capped to stop the gouging of consumers and the new owners struggled to make any money. With this dork model, I mean, basically, that was Jeff Kennett was going through privatisation and he thought, well, how can I maximise my sale price? What I'll do is... He actually did exactly what the New South Wales government and the Queensland government did in the 2007 period. He just did it pre-privatisation in the 90s and what he did was he inflated the asset base of those network businesses. They just went and came up with some kind of economic theoretical rationale for whatever the, 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 the method was to maximise the sale price of those assets and, and that was the model that they landed on. 
then tenants sold it to a bunch of private sector businesses who paid for it on the basis of valuation, assuming they'd be able to make that revenue. And now the New South Wales government has done the same. They use that same regulatory model that we've, we used that was set up under Kennet. Now the New South Wales government has then sold those assets on the basis of a regulatory regime that says, here's the asset value of, of these assets. Um, they're completely independent of what we actually think electricity demand might be in the future, but you've got a license to recover that, that revenue and that, that asset value uh, into perpetuity. The current model is not efficient. It's not recognising that the that networks are open to competition from energy efficiency and open to competition from distributed generation. Kenneth makes no apology for his use of dork. When you privatise, it's not the dork or the stork or the stork that actually rules the day. It's what the market says an asset is worth. And they value it both on today's asset value plus their anticipated returns over a period of time. New South Wales, when they privatise, and Baird got a fantastic price for it, you know, bigger than the regulated asset base, and probably not as good as you got because you sent them all broke, all the Americans, didn't you? No, we didn't send them broke. They entered into a free market. They did what they thought was right. And what happens after that is their business, not ours. But they did struggle. We also put in place, when you talk about pricing, a uh, residual retail price cap which would have prevented a lot of the abuses that are currently taking place that is profit gouging etc etc but sadly that retail price cap control was in fact abolished by our successor governments being the Brumby government in 2009 because at that stage they felt uh, they were comfortable with what I would call the state of the market. Kenneth had maximised the returns to Victoria but capping prices reduced the profitability of the business. That is, until prices were deregulated by John Brumby's Labor government which followed. John Thwaites, who was Brumby's deputy, now admits that was a mistake. What went wrong? In Victoria, the uh, State Electricity Commission, which was around for you know, decades, uh, was privatised in the 1990s by the Kennett government. Uh, and since then, there's been a continued uh, progression towards an even more market-orientated approach. And in 2009, retail energy pricing was deregulated. And the theory was that once you just allowed the market to operate, competition to operate, that would drive down costs and provide more innovative services. Now, since 2009, the reality is that costs have increased by more than 100% and there's no evidence of significant innovative new services. I'd left just before that, but it was consistent with the government's policy that was a bipartisan policy to move towards a totally deregulated retail market. And that goes back to the... Keating Hawke reforms of competition policy, market policy, which generally have been good for Australia. The other safeguard was that Victoria had um, what what were called um, cross ownership restrictions in place. So, for example, a generator couldn't acquire a um, a retailer, and vice versa, of course. And those restrictions really maintained a the highly competitive structure that Victoria had put in place when they privatised, but those restrictions were subsequently lifted 
uh, in both cases. The removal of these cross-ownership restrictions, which came later, also created much bigger, more powerful energy companies. This was a tipping point in the saga, says Roman Demansky. And um, once they were lifted, there was nothing holding back the dam anymore. And that's when you started to get the um, vertical reintegration of the industry such that you, you had generators and retailers joining together and this is this has been one of the main failings of the market where uh, it's allowed uh, generators and retailers to push up prices. This led to a spate of acquisitions by the big power generators in other states too, which entrenched their market power. It created the so-called Gen Tailors, AGL, Origin Energy and Energy Australia, which dominate both the generation and the retailing of electricity. Basically, um, you know, the retail markets in, in the national electricity markets, so the regional retail markets, if you like, in each state, are very highly concentrated. There's, you know, three gen- uh, three retailers, rather, that dominate dominate these markets. That's AGL, Origin, and um, Energy Australia. And and they, you know, typically they have anything from like a, you know, seventy to ninety percent share of the market. If they acquire large generating assets as well, that obviously gives them, you know, not just the the retail side of things, but also um, have a large presence in generation. Now, um, ultimately, um, generation is critical to what you pay for electricity. Generation costs are, you know, around about 30 to 40 percent of the um, of the average bill. And uh, if you can if you can uh, have a large presence in generation as well as in retail, then you're in the box seat to uh, start um, influencing prices and pushing up prices and um, in the electricity market situation now is that those three companies um, as well as having the large share of retail that I spoke about also have probably you know a 50 to 60 percent share of the, the generation sector as well. The national energy market was not supposed to work out like this. Bruce Mountain. We have adopted an approach where we've been encouraged to imagine that they are privately run and privately funded. And it is it is a device for considerably higher profits. But worse than that, it's a very inefficient way to raise profits. Um, it's raising those profits not by spending less and becoming more efficient, but by uh, essentially building white elephants, uh, which has occurred in grand scale, most notably with a government's own. I mean, could you argue reasonably that this, the government's using this as a tax base uh, is just another form of tax which goes into infrastructure and health and schools and essential services, so therefore the economic impact of ridiculously high energy prices isn't really all that bad? Well, th- this, has, this has been the implicit argument, most notably in New South Wales, um, as part of the sort of public debate on it, uh, was that, well, this profit's going into the Treasury, who then uses it for education and health care and so on. Um, I don't think that's, that's good enough at all. Um, this is a horrifically inefficient tax. If the state government wanted to tax it, a far more efficient way to raise the same amount of revenue would be to simply put a levy on electricity consumers' bills. 
and they would have raised that same amount of money. The problem with that, of course, is it's far more transparent. Putting governments aside, the single biggest private beneficiary of all of this has been a foreigner, Hong Kong billionaire Lee Ka-shing. Ka-shing's CKI is one of Australia's biggest overseas investors with stakes in electricity and gas distribution and in renewable energy power transmission. Lee Ka-shing has done very well indeed. I'd love to see the sums, but I'm sure he's done much better here than he's done anywhere else. Um, but he has not benefited as much as the governments themselves. You know, when I say the governments benefited, it was the people that um, that gained income at a point of time, but ultimately lose because they've done this by, by building an asset that's not worth what consumers are being charged for it, and which ultimately, I suspect, has to come back to the taxpayer in one form or the other. It's clear that energy users, households and industry have been the losers. Bruce Mountain prepared a report for a government inquiry earlier this year and found South Australia's electricity price would soon overtake Denmark as the highest in the world. It set off a political firestorm in a state still reeling from blackouts last summer. Without radical reform, all Bruce Mountain can see ahead is higher prices. Despite the decline of demand, the prices have continued to go up to Darwin. From what you're saying, you don't see any relief then. You think they'll continue to rise? I, I think they will rise not because spending will increase. I think spending uh, will stagnate and in some cases decrease as it as it long should have. Um, but I think I think network charges will continue to rise because I expect um, the demands on the shared network to decline as more and more of our electricity is produced locally. It's much cheaper now to produce electricity at the point of use than it is to buy it from the shared network. Increasingly, the combination of batteries and, and having solar, which improves the economics of installation of solar, you have an incentive to put more solar in if you can use it locally and, and uh, decrease your purchases from the grid. So, so this means um, that there'll be less people and poorer people that can't afford the solar panels left on the grid, so there's a possibility that, that the taxpayer will end up footing the bill because they'll need, as there's subsidies right now, they'll need greater subsidies if more people go off the grid. Yeah, so the issue is essentially what do you do about an asset base that's um, disproportionately high compared to the value that it actually delivers. For those cases where the government owns, there is only one resort to turn to unless you turn to the electricity customer, uh, and that is essentially the taxpayers. So, yes, they will be picking up the bill for past regulatory failures. This is what economists call a death spiral. People who can afford alternative energy, such as solar panels on their house, leave the grid and the cost of maintaining the gold-plated grid falls to those who cannot leave. Jeff Kennett. Governments are now giving industry subsidies to help them with their energy bills. Well, what a public recognition of a total failure of an energy policy uh, around the country. It's not just the federal government, it's the states more than the feds. Uh, now, that might then spread to domestic consumers as well, because if they're going to keep going to the charitable organisations, they haven't got the capacity to pick up the, the sort of uh, extra cost. So, you know, it's a catch-22 situation. So it may well end up in the lap of taxpayers then? Could easily. Absolutely. And how does the taxpayer pay for it? Because we're not generating the new wealth. 
wages aren't growing, so households haven't got the capacity to pay because their communities are increasingly being pressured by energy costs which they can't absorb, and a lot of the industries in those areas will simply not be able to compete. And I know of so many industries today where their power bill has gone up, whether it's gas or electricity or both, beyond their capacity to absorb and beyond their capacity to pass it on to the consumer. So I've got an overseas company that's invested here years ago under, in the 90s under our administration. It only produces one consumer product, and they're... Bill has gone from uh, about two seventy to two hundred and seventy thousand, which doesn't seem a lot, to over seven hundred thousand. So that's almost three times. They can't pass on that extra cost. They can't absorb it. So they're now thinking about shutting down. And I can give you four or five examples of that in larger companies. So energy costs now are becoming a matter for boards, whereas before energy was just a cost within the PLL. So you would describe energy policy and the carriage of energy energy policy in this country as in the past 10 years and as being... Complacent to the point Complacent of, or worse? Well, case. worse. Complacent to the, port, uh, to the point of uh, abject failure. Because what's been happening for the last 10, 13 years in Australia, politics at a national level has all been focused on self, self-interest and egos, and at the state level, uh, they have been rushing to be the first into the most clean energy providers in Australia or the world. South Australia led the way, Victoria's catching up with the targets they've set. It can't be done in the short term without massive investment, which won't come, and it can't be done without huge cost to community as a whole. So we're into a frightening period. The states have sold their power assets to the highest bidders, often foreign companies based in offshore tax havens like the Cayman Islands. When you privately... New South Wales, when they privatise, and Baird got a fantastic price for it, you know, bigger than the regulated asset base, and, and two of them are domiciled out of four in the Cayman Islands. I mean, do you, I mean... I mean, do the feds look at the states and say, please don't give away our tax base? I mean, should there be a rule in place? Is that over-regulation to expect that these assets don't end up in the Cayman Islands? No, I don't think it's an over-cautious approach. Quite the opposite. I think people who invest here and earn wealth here should pay taxes here. Simple as that. Energy poverty is on the rise. Disconnections on the rise. Large companies such as fertiliser group Incitec have elected to invest hundreds of millions of dollars building plants overseas. The price of energy is a global issue. What does the future hold in Australia? What options do we have? Find out in the next episode of The Energy Truth. Investigation and interviews by Michael West. Voiced by journalist Nikki Markovic. Executive producer Adam Shand. The Energy Truth is a Podcast One production.